I want to turn you this morning again to the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 20. We're going to be looking at a very important passage of Scripture. <clears throat> this was actually the second message I brought at the conference in St. Louis, and the word was well received. And it is a, a very important passage of Scripture teaching us something wondrous about our Lord and his heart toward his own. Of course, we're going to be looking at a passage that took place really in the main of it a week after the Lord Jesus had arisen from the grave. And in this chapter, we learn, of course, that the women came early to the grave site. The Lord was not there. The stone was rolled away. They went for Peter and John, Mary Magdalene particularly. And uh, we know that John, when he for a second time not only looked into but went into the sepulcher, the grave site, he found grave clothes that were neatly put there folded and uh, the head covering in another place neatly folded grave clothes that if you follow the Jewish burial procedures of that time were like cemented to the body and of course it was impossible literally impossible for those grave clothes to be in the position they were unless the Lord Jesus Christ had arisen from the dead and John believed. He believed was the first of the apostles to do so. The Lord, of course, during that day had five appearances and in the evening he appeared to his apostles but Thomas, of course, was not present in that meeting for whatever reason. We'll look at that a bit when we look into the passage. But Thomas, of course, would come to believe. He would come to believe and offer the highest confession in the Gospels concerning the Lordship and the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, we learn as the Gospel goes forth and is proclaimed that those are saved only who come to believe that God actually raised Christ from the dead and that he is Lord indeed. And that becomes really a test of whether one has a simply an intellectual faith. They accept a credence of what is taught, but it's not a heart matter. So Paul speaks of believing from the heart that God raised him from the dead. That's a whole being faith. And one of the great marks that one truly does believe in their heart that God raised Christ from the dead is their submission to his lordship. They will confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus and submit to him. And so only those who in their heart believe that God raised from the dead actually submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So it becomes a very important passage of Scripture for us here. We read 
in John chapter 20, beginning in verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them, that is, with the other disciples, when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. Be not, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. That beatitude, the blessedness of those having not seen believing, we will reserve to this afternoon. In the prophecy of Zechariah, chapter 13, verse 7, uh, as is Old Testament prophecy, a wondrous verse is found there, where God says, uh, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. Matthew chapter 26 tells us that regathering of those who had been scattered was taking place and has a fulfillment in the Lord's bringing those apostles back after they had all forsaken him at the cross. And, of course, it also teaches us that God will not lose a single one. The Lord had said that, redeemed by the blood of his Son. And the last apostle to be recovered was Thomas. Thomas, who was not present when the Lord appeared the week before. And when he appeared the week before, of course, no one was expecting him. No one expected that he would actually rise bodily from the grave. They thought they'd seen a spirit. They were already fearful because of the Jews, we're taught, and they were behind closed doors. And behind those closed doors, the Lord comes. He's in their midst. So they thought they saw a spirit. But he says, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as you see me have. He showed himself to them. We know the apostles were to be eyewitnesses of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we have empirical evidence for the resurrection 
they, among many other proofs that the Lord, of, of course, actually did rise from the dead, they chosen to be witnesses of him, and uh, they would pay a high price, Daniel, for their witness to the resurrection of Christ. They would be willing to give their bare lives up in this world and die for the name of Christ, and you just don't do that for something you don't really know to be true. They did. They did know it to be true. There are those who try to discredit, of course, the resurrection, whether they be liberal theologians or outright unbelievers in the world. But every argument that unbelief can be brought against the resurrection of Christ is put down by the actual facts of the matter. So that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is established as highly or not, if not higher than any event in the history of the world. And so, when we read of Thomas and his refusal to believe unless he could see and touch the risen Christ, we're to understand it was not only Thomas, it was the other disciples as well, who would not believe Christ had arisen until they absolutely could not deny it, until they experienced the resurrection of the Lord. So in a sense, the other apostles would get back their medicine because the women who had come and declared that Christ was risen, that they'd heard the angelic messenger in the tomb. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. And they didn't believe them. They considered those as bringing them, quote, idle tales. Well, they're getting their own medicine back now in Thomas. But <clears throat> we want to look here into one of those passages that affords strong evidence. And it involves also the, the honesty of the inspired writers. You see, the scriptures don't hide the flaws. The greatest saints, you'll read of their flaws. It's not like some man or woman who's writing about some hero or fictitious hero in this world. Oh, they don't tell bad things. All is good. Well, J.C. Ryle put it, If imposters and deceivers had compiled the Bible for their own private advantage, they would never have told mankind that one of the founders of a new religion behaved as Thomas here did. There's no way. I like sometimes... To read Arthur Pink, he speaks of the characters in Scripture as being painted in colors of truth. But what we're going to consider as we look into this passage will be the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ to an erring disciple in spite of his outright unbelief and we would say even arrogance of Thomas. We're not told the reason that he was not present with the other apostles on that first 
Sunday evening when the Lord Jesus Christ met with them. Well, we all are, we're all told, we are taught that he is one of the twelve. That seems to be emphasized here for us. Of course, that would be known already. But here we have the emphasis that Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with them when the Lord Jesus came to them. And so it indicates here that something was amiss in his responsibility, that he should have been present with the other apostles. And when coupled with the inexcusable irreverence and arrogance that he actually shows when he does show up, we're led to think that this was indeed a dereliction of his duty, one of the twelve, but he was not with them. Or as another put it, it's hard to avoid the suspicion that Thomas was absent when he might have been present. If the disappointing misery of Thomas was like those Emmaus disciples, if he was dejected, if he was cast down, if he was depressed, and uh, he was sorely disappointed indeed because he thought Christ was dead, he thought he had died. He had no conception, no belief whatsoever that the Lord Jesus had actually risen from the dead. If the, Because he was dejected, depressed, if that's the reason he neglected the meeting, we might understand it somewhat. But yet he surely had heard the same reports as the other apostles. He surely had heard from them and others of the risen Christ because there were ample evidences upon evidences upon evidences that Christ had actually risen from the dead. So here, whatever caused his misery, he would have to bear it for another whole week. We can learn from the passage, apply from the passage, the importance of gathering with the church in her appointed meetings. That very missed meeting may be when the Lord comes in a special way. What a blessed thing we read, then came Jesus. That was the week before. And we're going to find out, of course, that it was great mercy that we read in the passage we read concerning Thomas. Then came Jesus. But I've heard over the years, from time to time, those who say, well, you know, I'm very tired, very, very much uh, have other things that I'm pressed with to have to do, but, but I came, but I came to the meeting. And when they leave, they say, I'm really glad I came to the meeting. It was a special word that the Lord had placed in their heart. There was something very blessed and special that was given to them. Though they came, and it was a little costly. It's not much costly. We're talking about cost of Christianity this morning. It's not much costly to come to a service. 
That's not the costliest thing about our following of Christ, is it, Daniel? Not at all. But though costly, a little, some come. They come to the meeting. They know they should be there. And those who come to overcome the flesh and the desires of the things in this world or the desire of ease, they leave with a tremendous blessing oftentimes. That could come no other way. There's a benefit that comes to their soul from the word. The Lord knows how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. And uh, not showing up may mean to lose that truth or that word. I'm thankful for live stream that we have now. For those who cannot come, they can follow the word and join with us in spirit in that way. But that's not the best way. That's not the best way. The best way is to gather, to gather in the assembly of the saints. We have something that supplements that, but it cannot replace it. We're thankful for it. But the blessing is to be here in the service. The best reason for a diligent gathering is the promise of the Lord Jesus. Though I'm with you always, even to the end of the world, where two or three are gathered in my name. There am I in the midst of them. When we come to the assembly, the Lord Jesus has promised to be with us in a special way. And that's a, a very blessed thing. So I've heard others say how they appreciate that we now have these means where we can get the word out uh, by live stream, but they would much rather be here in the service. But the truth is, and I've said it before, we will do, we will seek to do what's really in our heart, what we really want to do. It's amazing sometimes how the things of God get pushed aside. Other things, oh, want to be done, oh yeah, we can go here, we can go there, we can do this, we can go have a nice meal if we're worn completely out, but we can't come to church. We do what we want to do what the heart goes after and desires. We yearn, we plan, we do what we want. And it tells about our heart. Poor Thomas missed a tremendous blessing. And yet the Lord is going to show him great mercy. There is a beatitude, if you please, a blessing that's secured for those who are faithful to the Lord's appointed ordinances, as in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 34. Blessed is the man that heareth me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors, waiting on the Lord, looking to him. And the Psalms, of course, tells us, open thy mouth wide and I will fill it just like those little birds and the mother bird comes and has the worm 
and the mouth is open wide. God says, open your mouth wide. He's going to put good things into it. Considering Thomas, and we consider the temperament and the constitutional tendency, if you please, of Thomas, that there shows in him a melancholy disposition. It might go a ways to explain his negligence and even the arrogant refusal to believe that Christ had been raised from the dead. From two other places, he's mentioned in this gospel. He has a tendency to look on the darker side of things. He is the glass half-empty type. He's the one who says, if I'm driving in two lines down the highway and I've got to get somewhere, whatever line I get in, I'm going to be the last one to get through there. Those there in the other place, they're going to get through more than I am, quicker than me. He is pessimistic. He's sure the worst is going to happen. But to his credit also, we must say that Strangely coupled with this negative tendency is displayed an intense and brave devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. When word came to the Lord Jesus that Lazarus had died and the Lord then had determined to return to Jerusalem where the Jews had tried to seize him before, Thomas, not with an encouraging word, Lord, we're with you, we're going to go with you, we're going to stay with you. No, Thomas, with his grim outlook in chapter 11, verse 16 of this Gospel of John, says, let us go also, that we may die with him. We're going to die, we're going to die. Let's go ahead, we'll go with him, we'll die too. This kind of temperament, which Arthur Pink observed was a type of, quote, a large class of Christians who are his successors, disposed to pessimism, tends also to be contentious and contradictory. This type of personality is a contentious personality as well. So, when in John chapter 14, the Lord says, Whither I go, you know, and the way you know, Thomas didn't say, Lord, can you explain that to me? Lord, I want you to, you know, if you can expound a bit further to me, you know, so I can learn about this. No, that's not what he does. What he does is blatantly contradict the Lord himself. Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Then notice, Thomas was not simply doubting Thomas. Sometimes he's called doubting Thomas. No, no, he was outright unbelieving Thomas. And in verse 25, 
The other disciples therefore said to him, We've seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. That doesn't sound like simply doubt, does it? But from this as well as many other passages, we'll find this magnifying the sovereign mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Incredible mercy. So here we could probably not do much better than to quote from J.C. Ryle. It is hard to imagine anything more tiresome and provoking than the conduct of Thomas. When even the testimony of ten faithful brethren had no effect upon him, and he doggedly declared except I see with my own eyes and touch with my own hands, I will not believe. But it is impossible to imagine anything more patient and compassionate than our Lord's treatment of this weak disciple. And it is incredible. And his mercy is incredible. And his mercy we can depend upon. In our frailties, in our weaknesses, in our trials, in our troubles, in our heartaches, in our losses. In our tendencies. In difficult times. To forget. Things that are most important. Even our tendencies to unbelief. You see, when God gives new life in Christ, he doesn't transform the flesh. It's still there. He gives new life. He creates a spiritual life. But we still have the battles, the conflicts, the doubts, the fears that can come. And even battle with unbelief. And the Lord would be right and just if he just left us that way. But he doesn't to those who are his. Thomas would be corrected. And the correction would include a revelation from Christ that would turn this outright denier into an enraptured confessor. As we read in verses 26 through 28. And after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus. That's a whole difference. That's a whole difference. You can have a massive amount of people in a congregation. Doesn't mean a thing if the Lord Jesus doesn't come, if he's not there. Shouldn't that be our heart's cry? Lord, come, meet with us. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, 
and reach hither my hand, thy hand, and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Well, what kind of reproof was it that humbled Thomas? Faithless Thomas. Well, <clears throat> we should notice, of course, that the language of Thomas was quite revealing. It was not simply expressing doubt. Had Thomas said, if I see and touch, I will believe. You know, if I just let me see, let me touch, and, and I'll, I'll believe. Then we should think him at least open, right? Open, disposed to believe upon proper evidence. But no, that's not Thomas. That's not what he does. We have a rather defiant tone. Unless I see and touch, I will not believe. Then we should notice that the Lord waited a whole week. A whole week. Until the second Sunday after his resurrection. To meet again with his disciples. Then what does he do? He singles out Thomas. Sometimes there's a special dealing with one here or one there. He'll do the same thing with Peter. You remember Peter that denied his Lord three times? But then when uh, the Lord calls them and he, they come to him on the shore, he singles out Peter. Peter's the one, of course, who denied him. Sometimes the Lord is pleased to single one out if you and I maybe go astray. And we're his sheep. We belong to him. He might come and single us out. It might be that you sit under the ministry of the word of God and sometimes you think, well, the Lord is speaking just to me. Just to me. I mean, you hear it, preachers hear it all the time. Preacher, you just preach that to me. Well, hopefully it's the Lord speaking to someone's heart. I want to hear him. And if I tend to go astray and listen, wouldn't we be arrogant if we said we don't have any capacity to go astray? But if we walk some way in the wrong way, and he comes to us, and our hearts are moved by him, and we know that what is said is true, He's speaking to us in some particular way. How blessed we are. How blessed we are. But the Lord waited a week, second Sunday after his resurrection, to meet with the disciples again. Then he singled out Thomas. Instead of a lengthy stay with the disciples, like the two on the way to Emmaus, the Lord didn't stay very long with them. After they recognized who he was, then immediately he leaves. So the Lord met briefly when he appeared and then quickly left their sight. So it is, he wouldn't stay with Thomas after Thomas would be able to not deny that he was risen indeed. You see, 
they must learn to live by faith. To live by faith, to trust him without sight. As another put it, they have to adjust their thoughts. He's not going to stay with them. He showed himself alive five times on the day of his resurrection, then only five more times for the next 40 days, and he was preparing them for his leaving. You remember Mary Magdalene? Oh, we're all touched when we read about Mary Magdalene and her heart toward the Lord and, and the Lord coming and making himself known to her in the garden where the tomb was. But he says to her, touch me not, for I'm not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father and to my God and your God. What was he saying to her? I'm going to ascend. Don't try to retain me. It, it can't be now physical. Uh, it can't be outward. I'm going to ascend to my father. But this second meeting, this second meeting seems designed, if we really want to consider it, I think, aright, as a special act of grace. Out of sovereign mercy to this unbelieving Thomas. If the Lord leaves us to ourselves, I don't want to be left to myself, do you? I don't want to be allowed to go your own way. I want to go his way, don't you? Left to ourselves, we would never break with our natural condition. Left to ourselves, we would go on. The world would take our heart. The things of the world would consume us. Things would take us. If we were left to ourselves. We would never break out of the natural condition. It might bring defiance, lethargy, the fulfilling of sinful lust, the love of the world, or whatever. Left to ourselves, that's what we would continue in. If the Lord had left us to ourselves, we'd simply reap the awful consequences of our own sin and unbelief. There's only one reason. There is only one, no other reason for the recovery of Thomas. In three words, then came Jesus. Then came Jesus. That should be the cry of our heart when we gather. Lord, come. Lord, make thyself known to us. Be in our midst. If there's correction needed in me, and listen, often there's correction needed in me. 
We need to cry and seek the Lord's face. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. And know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. You see, a nominal Christian, quote, unquote, they're not going to do that. They're not going to be concerned about their walking in God's ways and in his truth. They are going to assume they're okay. The one in whom God does the work, they want to walk in his will. They want to know his ways. But they often feel very weak, frail, faulty. Search me. Know my heart. Lead me. Then came Jesus. Then what about the way that the Lord corrected Thomas? If you want to use the word, reproved him. Graciously reproved him. How did he humble this arrogant, unbelieving Thomas? Well, the Lord would bring him low. How? He would bring him to be ashamed of his sinful action. How? By granting him the very thing he asked for. By giving him that. You know, that, that's different than some other cases. In scripture, he's dealing with one whom he's going to show great mercy, one whom he loves, one whom he's going to bring and give great knowledge to right here. And uh, <laughs> yet he reproves him by giving him the thing he asked for. Go ahead, Thomas. Go ahead. Go ahead, put your hand into my side. Go ahead, put your hand in the, in the scars. Go ahead, Thomas. There are other places, as we say in Scripture, where it's just the opposite. God gave them their heart's desire. Oh, Lord, I want this thing. I want that thing. I want this happiness in the world. I want that. And the Lord gives them their desire, but then he turns around and sends something else into their hearts. Leanness. I'd rather be on Thomas's place there. Gracious correction. By granting of the request that was at the same time a rebuke. But then came something very important. The word. The word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Actually, it's a command. Be not faithless, but believing. And we're going to have to say something about the word the Lord spoke to him. You see, it was far more than simply the outward evidence. As undeniable as it was concerning the resurrected Christ. It was also an inward work. 
that must take place. An inward work of the revealing Christ, the one who can make himself known, and effect his word in one, cause it to be effectual in one. The inward work of Christ, this is what transformed Thomas and brought out of him the highest confession recorded in the Gospels. Was it simply the sight of Christ only? Others saw the Lord Jesus and didn't believe. Was it simply the scars? The scars of the cross in the Lord's body? The realization that the Lord knew his words, though he was not bodily present when Thomas spoke them? What was it that changed the whole disposition of Thomas? Something had to take place in Thomas himself. Something far deeper than even the outward evidence and an intellectual credence that could not deny now but that the Lord was risen, risen from the dead. You see, the light may brightly shine forth. But if the eye is in a bad condition and not healthy in seeing, the light won't be seen. There has to be something inward. There has to be something inward that sees. And we're talking spiritually in this regard. The voice of the Lord Jesus Christ the word Christ spoke to Thomas. Be not faithless, but believing. Brought with it the Lord's miraculous work. As much divine power in the word of Christ that would say to one with a palsied hand, stretch forth thine hand. And he did so and was healed. As much power in the word, in the voice of the shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, as to the winds and the waves that threaten to send a ship to the bottom with apostles in it, but the command comes and says, Peace, be still. You see, the Lord's word, when he speaks it, carries his command and his power. When it comes by the work of God's Holy Spirit, it does not return to him void. It does what he purposed for it to do. There was in the reproof of Christ, in the call of Christ, yea, in the scars of Christ, in the sovereign mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the mysterious divine power of Christ, there was a revelation that brought the realization. Though he heard my defiant words. Though he knows everything about me. He still loves me. If you and I come to that place, how blessed we are. Though I'm not walked in the way I should walk. 
Though I might have talked to others, but I haven't done what I preached or taught. And the Lord comes and reproves me. He still loves me. He won't let me go. My. What an incredible mercy. The Lord shows to Thomas. What an incredible mercy he shows to us. I'm glad Thomas is in the Bible. I'm glad you look like you see Jacob of old. I'm glad Jacob's there. Jacob was a rascal. Yet God says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Jacob, the supplanter, the deceiver. Jacob have I loved. My we come to recognize we're sinners oh so in need of a savior constantly in need of a savior and how blessed when though we've sinned we come to recognize he still loves me he won't let me go So what kind of love was Thomas loved with? Indeed, it was an incredible love. It was a love that only God can love with. Sometimes it's been called Calvary love. Calvary love. That transforms the soul. And brings the faithless to believe. Those scars. Those scars in the hands, the feet, and the side of the Lord Jesus. Those scars were more than simply the evidence that he was risen indeed. Those scars are the marks of the cross. It was the Christ of the cross who reached deep down into the heart of Thomas. It was the Christ of the cross who came irrespective of the arrogance and the unbelief shown by Thomas. It was the proof of the gospel in those wounds. As Spurgeon put it, the wounds are the infallible witness of the gospel of Christ. All who are truly saved by the grace of God, only by Jesus Christ and Him crucified, are not saved simply because they accept and agree with the outward evidence intellectually believed. They're saved because they came to know what God had done for them. Though they had sinned so grievously against him. 
though they'd sinned against God himself. Though they had grievously transgressed his holy law. Yet they heard of an incredible love that loved in spite of them and gave its proof in the cross. God commendeth his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Men show their human kind of love to those they like or those who are kind of like them or something they appeals to them from them but God loves us while we were yet sinners transgressed against him opposite to him Organus Spurgeon wrote incarnate deity the notion of the God that lived and bled and died in human form, instead of guilty man, is itself its own best witness. No philosopher, no religious thinker or teacher, not the most gifted poet, would ever have thought of the wondrous salvation devised and divine wisdom decreed by God. That's why man always thinks of some work he must do. Something he must perform in order for God to accept him. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. And goes on to say, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians one twenty one, after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, that is all the thousands of years of human history, man could not find out God or his ways. After that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe, not foolish preaching. The preaching of the cross that the world considers foolish. The preaching of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, devised in God's decree and wisdom. No outward witness, no weighing of the evidence, no intellectual study brought a sinner I know to trust the Christ who died and rose and ascended to save his guilty soul. In salvation, not a whole lot is known. We're not theologians yet. <laughs> We're sinners. Sinners. I know a sinner who came under deep conviction and fear 
of the face of God. Who came to realize and hear and believe that Christ died for his soul, that Christ took his place, that the Son of God bore his sins on the cross, and that his gospel called to believe him. To believe, not to work for it, to believe, to trust him. It was an inward work, an inward knowledge, a revelation that the living God loved that sinner and proved it by giving his son to save him. The gospel of a crucified Christ, a divine Christ, an incarnate deity that declares And can be declared by everyone redeemed by his blood. He loved me. And gave himself for me. Didn't deserve anything of his love. I deserve just the opposite. But his grace saves. Thomas didn't deserve any goodness from Christ. The Lord loved him. Came to him. Then came Jesus. What blessed words. Then came Jesus. No other evidence. No other revelation to the soul. Will make you a true Christian. And cause you in self-denial. To take up your cross. Loving. With an incredible. And undeniable love. The love that loved you and you've embraced. That love was felt deep, obviously, in the heart of Thomas. So we're not taught. We don't know. Not likely that Thomas touched the Lord, ever put forth his hand. But something took place in his soul. Be not faithless, but believing my Lord and my God. What a confession. My Lord and my God. And so as we begin, if in your heart you have a heart belief that God raised Christ from the dead, then he is your Lord. He is your Lord and your God. Not just study, not just intellectually accepting something, but a genuine faith in Christ that looks to and trusts him alone. By embracing a Calvary love. Calvary love. He redeemed me for himself. He came into this world to save sinners like me. 
What a wondrous, really, passage of Scripture we have here. Lord willing, the beatitude of believing, the blessedness of it, this afternoon.